I was in Albany, New York, and it was the first time you had ever come to Albany. And we went out on a computer book distribution, and it was a fair in downtown Albany, and Prabhu had given us a pep talk, and we were all going to go throughout the grounds. There were thousands and thousands of people, and we were supposed to be, you know, distributing books. And in the, after that event, we were all supposed to meet at this 130-year-old house, in which if you walked on the floor, the floor creaked. And every time that, that, that room was very small, very, very small, maybe one-eighth the size of this temple hall, and somehow it always expanded and there were 100 devotees sitting there. So that evening, when Prabhu came back, Prabhu, Prabhu asked everyone, share your realizations. And I was very naive, very new, and I said, I had a very difficult time. And there was this Western lady, Kumar was trying to give Bhagavad Gita, and she, before she held the book in her hand, she asked me a question. I don't think I answered it properly. And um, she said, no, I'm a, I'm a staunch Catholic. And I said, okay. And then I left. Prabhu chastised in a very gentle way. And he said, you should have taken her hand and put the Bhagavad Gita in her hand and said, that's why this is for you. Because you have so much devotion in your heart. So that was the lesson, the first lesson that I learned around the Bhagavad distribution from Prabhu. And Nirmala Mataji, a um, few years ago when I was very sick and she had come to know, she would check on me every two weeks like a mother. Every two weeks she would send me a message. How are you doing? How are you holding up? She would encourage me to read Prabhupada's books. She would even send me links where I think Keshav Bharti Maharaj used to read this, you know, every day he would read and he would, she would encourage me, just join this, just listen, just on Facebook, Maharaj used to read, uh, read the books of Prabhupada, like different, you know, different times. And I felt, I was alone, I couldn't move, I was in a bed. It was very hard for me. But I, I felt like, you know, someone should have brought should have was mercy. My mother was far away, but here was my mother, who was checking on me every couple of weeks and just making sure I'm doing okay. And I will never forget that, Mother Thank you so much for your love. So, we're very, very delighted, we're very grateful to welcome both of them to our small little family here in this town of Brown Rock. And just like we do always in our traditional Texan style, welcome them by lovely chanting the Hare Krishna Mahamantra. We're deeply touched and this is a beautiful community and the center is like a jewel place you've developed here. It's amazing. I'm greatly honored to be here. Well, if anybody wants to be an entrepreneur and invent a microphone that can survive an ISKCON congregation, <laughs> there you go. Just requires an IQ. Not that I have one, it's just a mistake. So uh, I'm deeply grateful to be with all of you tonight here in this beautiful temple. Who knew 
we'd all be here together in this place in Texas, in Northern California, Northern America. And all of you, many of you from India, some of us from perhaps North America, and so, um, somehow or other we're here together in Texas. This is a miracle, actually. And um, we had earlier discussed about remembrance, and Rupasagar quoted a verse from the 15th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, in which Krishna says that he's within the heart. It's a source of remembrance, knowledge, and forgetfulness. And also in the Gita, Krishna talks about how from his position in the heart, he inspires those who are sincere. And furthermore, he says in the fourth chapter of the Gita that one of the ways that we can show our sincerity is to ask questions. Of course, this was very much appreciated at Naimasharnya. Remember how the sages, headed by Shonaka, who was representing all the sages, he was the most elderly there and, and very highly qualified. He asked the questions of Sutta Goswami. There was decorum there. And Sutta appreciated the questions. Muniyat Saraprishto Ham Bhavadvir Lukamangalam Yaprishta Lukasangas. Muniyat Saraprishto Ham. He, he was appreciating the Munis and how they had asked questions. And we find throughout the transcendental literatures that there's a question asked. In the, in the Bhagavatam, the question was, well, what should I do at the time of death? What's my duty, my final duty? It's a question that relates to everybody, right? Because all of us are in the same boat and Prikshit Maharaj had accepted this curse on his head that he would die in seven days. So then he wanted to know, what do I do with these last seven days? What's my duty at this time? Also, Sanatana Goswami, when Sanatana Goswami met Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he asked questions. Do you remember what he said? What he asked? Who am I? He said, everyone says I'm a learned person. He knew seven languages. He ran the go whole government of Bengal, actually. And very wealthy person, highly learned, had the best of everything. And when he met Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he decided that to give everything up. First time he met him, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was nearby in Sakara Malik. And the Rupa and Sanatan were still working under the Muslim, Muslim government, so they had to sneak out incognito and meet Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. They had written him a letter, but Mahaprabhu hadn't responded yet, so they snuck out to see him, where Mahaprabhu was performing Harinam Kirtan nearby, big festivals, thousands of people watching. And they came to meet him, and Mahaprabhu immediately initiated them, gave him the names Rupa and Sanatan. And, uh, Back in their doing their duties at home, where they were the finance minister and, and the second in charge running the government there, they were now taking time, especially Sanatan Goswami had called in sick, and he said that I can't.
can't come in, so the doctor came to see him. And it turned out there were about 20 brahmanas there. They were helping him study the Bhagavatam. He said, what kind of sick are you? And finally the king came, the emperor came, and he said, oh, you're not sick. And he just said, uh, I can't work for you anymore. I'm giving, giving up my, my job, my duty. And the king said, I need you. You're running everything. You have all the passcodes for everything. So what, what am I going to do? He said, if you're not going to do your duty, then go to jail. So he went to jail. Rupa Goswami had already left. He had wrapped up his business. Actually, it took him about a year to do that. It's not so easy. And he had left some gold. And that's that way Sanatana Goswami was able to bribe his way out of jail. He made his way across country, incognito. And finally, he met up with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And he had inquired from him. Rupa Goswami had inquired. Rupa Sanatana. And Sanatana Goswami said, who am I? Why am I suffering? He said, people think that I'm a great scholar and I'm so foolish that I believe them, but I don't know anything. I don't even know who I am. So if you search the Bhagavatam, you'll find that the questions are what is stimulating the conversation, eliciting a response. So the book I just wrote, I mentioned how the question mark, the mighty question mark, is the most powerful punctuation mark in any language. Make a little question mark like this. If you were to materialize that, what could it be as a, as a tool? Yes? That is right. 20 points. <laughs> be a hook. And Literally, uh, it hooks people's attention when you ask a question. If you, write, if you write an email to somebody and you don't include a question mark, they're not obligated to write you back. You do realize that, right? But if you write a long, long email and you just put in one question mark out of all the other punctuation marks, they owe you a response. You can see them 10 years later and say, hey, still owe me because I hooked you the question mark. I pulled you in a certain direction. And really it's the quality of, of the questions that we ask ourselves that pulls us in a certain direction. In fact, in communication it's said that whoever's asking the questions is leading the conversation. So one of the tenets of the practice of bhakti is to ask better questions. The quality of your life depends on the qualities of quality of the questions you're asking yourself. So in the book I wrote about four questions that make your life better. Would you like to hear them? I'd say, but we ran out of time, so maybe, maybe next year. <laughs> the first question is, uh, what is my purpose? I had this experience when the pandemic started with a little extra time on my hands. Not for long though, because Zoom picked up and then was busier than ever, but at least we didn't have to travel. We've been traveling and traveling, and then they said, you have to stay home now. It's like, no problem. And I took some time by myself to sit and write my priorities. I got a legal pad and a pen, and 
I just asked myself, what's most important to me in my life? And I started writing them down. And Nirkula and I, my wife Nirkula, we were taking a walk every day. And I was, it's the only thing I was talking about, which goes in front of which. Ten priorities written. And sometimes I'd move them around. I'd say, no, this one's more important than that. And as I was doing that, I was getting more clarity in my life. But what's most important, and I found that as I defined my priorities, I could understand what is my purpose. As I'm, these, this technique of writing down your priorities helps to triangulate, to come to a clear understanding of what is my main purpose in life. I was getting more energy. I felt like doing, working towards what was most important to me. After all, there's an old saying in Alice in Wonderland, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. That's known as wandering. And this is something that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu mentioned when he talked to Sanatana Goswami, Brahmanda Brahmate Kon Bhagyavan Jeev, Guru Krishna Prasadi Pai Bhakti Bhaktivedij. He said the soul is wandering throughout the universe and really has no set purpose. The only purpose that the soul has is random and isn't clear and hasn't decided what is the ultimate purpose in life. And so when, when we come to this uh, clarity about our purpose, like you can ask, why am I doing this? When you make a decision in life, does it align with your purpose? And guess what? As human beings, we can rearrange uh, the things we're doing in our life so that they're purposeful. We're doing them for the purpose that we've defined for ourselves. That's one of the exciting things about being a human being. We can be self-determining. We can reorder our life. We can reinvent ourselves. And we can actually decide what's most important. Which way should I go? So the first question is, what's my purpose? And I suggest, I invite you to take a little time for yourself and get a legal pad and a pen and write down your purposes. Write down your priorities. What's most important to you? When I moved on my list of priorities, the priority of being ready for death, I, everything else took a relative position in, in my life. Have you ever felt rushed or overwhelmed by choices in your life? Okay, three, four, five, six, six people. A way to gain a broader perspective and to relieve the burden is to remember that my ultimate purpose is to be ready for death. In fact, I found that that there were several, more than several, several is nondescript. I would say there are dozens of articles written about people and their mindset at the time of death. Most people thought of many of the activities they did in their, in, earlier in their life, which gave them great consternation as being not so important from that point at the end. And there were many things people wish they had prioritized more during their lives because 
they had gone on and they hadn't thought there was going to be an end. Once Prabhupada said, a materialist is somebody who thinks I will live forever. And a transcendentalist is somebody who thinks I may leave my body at any moment. So having uh, this clarity about my ultimate purpose and if it's similar or at least near top of the list as Parikshit Maharaj, that was his question, what should I do now at the time when I'm about to leave my body? This helps to put all of the things in perspective, don't you think? Next question is, how may I be of service? When Sadatana Goswami asked Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who am I? Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said that you're eternal servant of Krishna. That's good to know. It's our constitutional nature to serve. And we're eternal, he said. So, Prabhupada gives this analogy it's very useful, about a tiny screw. He said the tiny screw fits in a machine. And when it's in the machine, it's very useful. And it's extremely valuable while it's in the machine. But if it somehow or other comes loose and it falls out along the side of the road, then in being estranged from its original purpose, its service, which is its service, it becomes valueless. If you pick up that little screw by the side of the road and try to sell it on eBay, I don't know, will somebody give anything for it? I don't know what the minimum you can give for something on eBay, but it would, it would be very low. And one day, after I'd heard Prabhupada say that, I was walking along a road and I felt something under my foot and I looked down and there was a little screw buried in the dust. So I, I bent over and I picked it up and I brushed it off and I was looking at it. And I started feeling some camaraderie with that screw and I was thinking, I'm just like you. I got estranged from my original service, from my connection. Somehow I've fallen out and I've been lost. And when I, when I feel like that, when I'm disconnected, I feel uh, useless. But that tiny screw, if I were to find the machine and put it back in, it would immediately be the hero's journey. The little screw was doing an amazing service and then fell out and then somehow or other made its way back. What a journey, right? Found on a dusty logging road and then somehow or other somebody brought it back, put it back in the machine, it became united with its service. So when we're feeling frustrated, what are some other emotions we can feel that are so sanguine? Angry. Feel angry? Disappointed? Disappointed? Anxious. Anxious? then there's a question we can ask ourselves. How may I be of service? In fact, I read a book some time ago that I recommended. Somebody just bought a set of Bhagavatams. If your phone goes off in the class, you gotta buy, buy a set of Bhagavatams. 
It was worth it for a set of outcomes. Actions, and then one day I was something, something. What? A book? Something about a book? It was worth it for the Bhagavatams. <laughs> when we ask ourselves this question, how may I be of service, then there's a, we have, it's like flipping a switch. Oh, I know a book. Thank you. By the way, good to see you here in Texas. So, yeah, it's a book I recommend for all temple presidents. It was called, it was, uh, it's called, uh, by Andrew Carnegie, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, it's, it's an amazing book. He did such good research. It was pre-computer, he did all this research too. And he has anecdotes of people who have been in all kinds of very troublesome situations and then how they got out of it. And one of the scenarios was this person had experienced great loss, had made a big mistake, and was feeling daunt, not just downtrodden, but like his life was finished. And somebody gave him some advice that, why don't you think about just volunteering some service for others right now? And so he started doing that, and it, he said he felt immediate relief. That he got out of the small universe of his mind where everything looked dire, and started doing service, and lo and behold, his consciousness expanded. It expands because that's our constitutional position, and who we are constitutionally is amazing. Ascharyavat Pashyati Kashyadenam, Krishna says in the Gita, the soul is amazing. And so, Whenever you uh, feel misaligned, it's because misaligned with your constitutional position. And if you ask yourself this question or you ask it to somebody in the environment, how may it be of service, you'll flip the switch and you'll immediately feel aligned. At least this is my hypothesis. You can check it out for yourself. For instance, let's just take something close to home. Let's say you go to a gathering somewhere. Have you ever been to a gathering and you felt a little out of place because like nobody knows me? Like nobody knows who I am. Somebody invited me here. I don't even see the person who invited me. And you're kind of standing over the corner. It's like, how do I break into this? So if you walked up to somebody who looked like they know what they're doing, and it's probably the person who's doing some service, you walk up and you say, how may I be of service? They say, could you move those chairs over there? You start moving chairs, right? And suddenly you feel like, I'm in. I'm part of the inner circle here. I, I belong here. Next person walks in the door, they'll come over to you like, oh, where's the bathroom? You know, Because they'll think you like belong there. <laughs> Not like you're the odd person out. That's how quickly this principle works. It works internally and externally. The question, the counter question, or the question which causes me the problem is why aren't people serving me more? Can I get better service? I feel anxiety. Like, you could increase your service. Commercially everyone's saying, like, your service is terrible. It's like, why don't you ask how you can be of service? Just switch the, the question and you'll notice that you feel back in alignment. In fact, those who 
dedicate their whole lives to service can practically live without anything and still be happy. I lived as a brahmachari for 13 years. And most of the time, at least as long as I can remember, we mostly slept on the floor. Mattresses came much later. But we never slept on the floor. In fact, when, when I joined the ashram in San Francisco in 1973, we didn't even have our own clothes. They, they went in a community bin. You know, you'd throw your clothes in a bin. Somebody, hopefully somebody who knew what they were doing, would take it to the laundromat and wash it, fold it and bring it back and put it in a pile and let everyone just take something. So there's no sense that this is mine, that's yours. Hey, hey that's mine. And we didn't have anything except for several things that Prabhupada said that you need to be happy in life. You want to know what they are? Okay, four people said yes. Everyone else, close your ears. or go going the other Okay, he said, he said you need a little place to lie down at night and rest. He said you need some service and a little prasadam. That's all you need to be happy. And emphasizing the service, if you have a little service to do, then you can feel satisfied. And in times when you feel overwhelmed, out of place, you can ask, how may I be of service? Ask yourself, am I serving now? Am I in a serving mind? Do I have a service mind right now? Or am I thinking, woe is me? Because why aren't people serving me more? It's a world of difference. It's the difference of being out of alignment and then back in alignment and feeling happy again. Ready for the third question? This one's a little harder to ask, but if, if you practice it, you'll start noticing miracles in your life, seeing miracles. There already are miracles, but sometimes we don't see them. Louis Pasteur once said, great discoveries come only under the prepared mind. So this question will prepare you for seeing miracle, the miracles that are happening in your life already. And that question is, what is the lesson? Of course, we got this instruction from Lord Brahma. After he had worshipped Krishna as the source of everything, he had realized it because Krishna revealed it to him after Brahma had stolen Krishna's calves and cows, as we all know, and then tried to play a trick on Krishna. And Krishna out maneuvered him to the thousandth power by his unlimited potencies. And then Brahma came and offered his prayers. In those prayers, he gives this famous admonition in, in the 10th canto, 14th chapter, 8th verse, that I think most of you knew. And in it, Brahma said, there's a lesson in everything. In fact, the whole universe is a classroom. If I think that the, the universe is a place for me to be comfortable or to control, then I'll be jostled. But if I realize that I'm in a classroom and there are lessons to learn, and that everything that happens to me, Brahma said this in his verse, see everything that happens to you as bearing a lesson. 
it's an episode in your life meant to bring you to the next level. Just like you have first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. You elevate yourself through these, you learn your lessons and, well, why did I leave out kindergarten? That was one of my favorite classes. You go to kindergarten, you learn the lessons there, first grade, second grade. So we're, we're, the universe is meant for refinement. It's a universal classroom. And the way that we can take advantage of everything that happens to us in our life is by asking, what's the lesson? The counter question to that, the question that keeps us mired in the material world is, why me? In other words, if something happens and then I say, this shouldn't have happened to me, it should have happened to that guy. That guy's an idiot. I have my whole life's together, I do everything right, I'm good to everybody, so why me? Why me takes me in a downward spiral. It's called victimhood. If this shouldn't have happened to me, it should have happened to other people, just, just not me. However, it, that's why I said this is hard. Is sometimes when things happen to us, we feel so assaulted. We feel so put upon by uh, a person or the or whole world in general that I'm oppressed and misunderstood and violated even. It's not to condone uh, somebody taking advantage of us, but even as we're methodically uh, taking care of the situation and by doing our, du our duty, due process, to avoid being harmed, it doesn't mean we put ourselves in harm's way either. But when circumstances come to us, unsought, and they will, if we ask the question, what's the lesson? Then we rise above victimhood and we put ourselves in a position to learn the lesson that we're being taught, which is a, a way in which we become more and more refined and in tune with our purpose in life. Let's say these questions just out loud just so we keep up with them. The first one is, what is my purpose? Everyone can say. What is my purpose? The second is, how may I be of service? How may I be of service? And the third one is? What's the lesson? What's the lesson? Ready for the fourth one? Okay. Four people were. Everyone else, close your ears. <laughs> this one's a little bit longer, and you have to listen to the exact way I say it. It's, uh, where am I investing my attention right now? I'll say part of it, and you repeat. Where am I investing my attention? Right now. right now. Attention is a word that has the particle ten. It's a Latin word, ten. You'll find in the word tendon. Tendon holds together muscle and bone. And attention means to stretch towards something, to give special care to that particular uh, person or object that you're encountering, you give it your attention. And there's an old saying, is one of my favorite mantras that I carry with me wherever I go, and that is, where attention goes, energy flows. Do you know that one? Let's say it together. Where attention goes, energy flows. One more time. 
Our attention is very powerful. We, we tried this last night in a program, but we have a power as souls. We're conscious beings, and we're part of Krishna. We have the same quality as Krishna. Think of that. Krishna's the Supreme Personality of God, and we have the same qualities, but only in minute quantity. So where you place your attention, your energy is going to go. And if you want to test it out, would you like to test it out? Okay, I want you to turn to somebody in the room and just look at look them in the eye for half a second. Did you do it? Yeah? Did you notice anything? What? There was a smile? Yeah. Smile, because there's there's somebody home. There's somebody in there actually that can respond to you, a conscious being. That's amazing. It's the most amazing thing. And as we move about the world, we're investing our attention here, there, and everywhere. Just like, does anybody here have any money? Okay, see me afterwards, no. <laughs> People invest money. In fact, there's lots of books and courses about how to invest money and put it where you get your best what? ROI, right? Return on investment. And with the, the miracle of compounding interest, it's a miracle. It's one of the wonders of the world, actually, the compounding interest. It's like, what's the difference between getting 2% return and 3%? Massive, massive over time. So when we're investing our attention, which is far more valuable, we're getting ROA, return on investment. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna, excuse me, return on attention. And in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna talks about this. He says, Jayato Vishayam Pum Sam Sangas Teshu Vijayate. Sangat Sanjayate Kama Kama Krodho Vijayate. So if you, Jayato, you invest your attention in trying to control matter. This is essentially what he's saying. You look at something and you try to control it. You, you contemplate it with the purpose of owning it or controlling it. You're not thinking of using it in service. Then what happens? He said that investment will not just go to zero, but it'll take you below zero. Like nowadays, you know, you can double down on your investments and then <laughs> you could end up not just broke, but owing a lot of money. So when you invest your attention in dead matter, like I heard Prabhupada say, you want to live in a stone house. He said the man wants to live in a stone house. And he's always thinking, oh, I have this stone house. And finally gets a stone house and he moves in. And he said his consciousness becomes stone also. <laughs> because he invested his attention in the idea that, oh, the stone house is everything. I'll live there. So when you... Wherever you invest, wherever you're, we are investing our attention right now, that's where we're going, and that's what, how we're developing our consciousness. Our consciousness is, is being developed at every second by the, where we're investing it. And the highest investment, as we spoke about earlier, some of you mentioned various ways in which Krishna tells us that there is an object that you can invest your attention in where you'll get the highest return. That's good to know, right? If someone tells you about your money and they say, of course, you gotta be careful because a lot of times those things don't work out well. But somebody will say, uh, best 
ROI you can possibly get. And you, all you have to do is put in you know, $100, you're gonna get back a million. How's that sound? Doesn't sound realistic to start with, but what if it was true and you thought, wow, I'm gonna invest there. So everyone's looking for a place to put their energy where they'll get the best return, right? So the most important energy that we have is ourself, is our attention, where we're investing in. So in the Bhagavad Gita, we heard these verses that you all quoted, manmana bhava man bhakto, Krishna says, invested here. In, in the Gita, Krishna says in the 8th chapter, tasmat sarveshu kaleshu mamanusmara yujyacha, vayarpita mano budir, mami vaishyasya samshaya. He guarantees this investment. <laughs> he said, if you think of me all the time, therefore think of me all the time, then you'll get the best return on your intention. And we only have a short amount of time in this lifetime to invest our attention. Wherever we're investing it, that's creating our, not just our future, but it's developing our consciousness in, in that very second. So if we think of our attention, at any given moment, you think, where am I investing right now? Where's my intention going? And you readjust it based on what's the best place to invest it. Remember that it's gonna come back to you whatever, wherever you invest. So do you want the best investment or do you wanna waste it? Looking at things that are idle. What are some places where you could put your uh, attention, where you could invest your attention, where you would get a negative return, in your opinion? You have to tell me stuff now. Television. Television. So television. Okay, television could be one place because it depends which program you look at. In fact, there was some advice that was in, there used to be a magazine back in the early days. It was called TV Guide. And TV Guide, you could see what programs were gonna be on. And I read something years ago because there are so many arguments against television. In fact, there's a book called An Argument Against Television. It was very popular. And in it, it said that before you turn on the television, you should underline all the things that you have to see and decide why you have to see them. What were you gonna say? Uh, can I give another example? Please do. Largely social media. Social media, like scrolling, have you ever? <laughs> like that. Where's your attention being invested right at that time? Practically in nothing. Just random. You're not getting any return on that. It's kind of like if you eat junk food. What's the king of all junk food? Hostess Twinkies? Cheetos? <laughs> if you eat a meal of, every day of Hostess Twinkies and Cheetos for one month, how do you think you'll feel? Huh? You <laughs> feel like Cheetos. You look like Cheetos too. So we look, when we invest our attention in Krishna, we look bright and we start feeling happy and we have knowledge. Everything good comes from that. And if we invest our attention in chanting Hare Krishna, then Nama Chintamani Krishna Chaitanya Rasa Vigraha Purna Shuddha Nityamukta Abhinadvam Nama Nama. You know, there's a sense where we feel fulfilled in all, all ways. Those are the four questions. There's a lot more discussion about them in the book, but I wanted to uh, hear any feedback you have from what we discussed so far. Uh, 
It means any, yes, oh, we, uh, anything you heard that stuck in your mind, a reflection or a question. And we have an extra microphone for you too. Yes, Prabhu. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Thank you very much for the words of wisdom. Appreciate it. The third question that we were discussing. So the third question, which is... That's not on, by the way. I'm not, I'll repeat your question. I'm repeating it for the people online because although we can hear you, they can't. Go ahead. So the third question... The third question. The third question, <laughs> which is uh, how to know where I'm going wrong. What's the lesson? What's the lesson? I have been practicing that lately, quite lately. And I couldn't understand who am I asking the question to and how to know if the answer is correct. Because I found that I was alone and I don't trust myself to be asking the question to myself. Whatever answer is coming is coming from my own mind. I don't have to trust that either. So who am I supposed to ask that question to and how to validate the answer? According to Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, Tadvidi Pranipatena Pariprashnin Sevaya Upadakshantite Gyanam Gyaninas Tapadarshina. It's helpful to have a mentor, someone who's experienced, who's learned lessons. In, in any discipline, if you have somebody who's already masterful in that discipline, and you go to ask them, and how should you ask? Ask them, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, first of all, you should be pranipat, which means you should go there in a humble mood and submit yourself. Then he says, you should uh, render some service because when you do service to somebody who's great who ha because they have knowledge, then their heart opens to you and the contents come out. You can feel it. And then you should also ask relevant questions. So that's one of the ways is to approach somebody who's in the discipline that you're trying to learn and ask such a person. That's Krishna's opinion. And also, we find in the 10th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, Tesham satata yuktanam bhajatam pritipurvakam dadami buddhiyogam tam yenamam upayantite. That I'm there within your heart. He's, as according to Gajendra, he's always there ready to instruct us and to give us direction. That's what he's saying there. And if you ask Krishna in your heart, Krishna, what is the lesson here? Then Krishna will answer you. Krishna will direct you to the answer in the Shastra or somewhere else. I, I had a circ circumstance where I was helping to manage a project and there was a catastrophic situation which gave me great consternation. I had to pull out that book, How to Stop Worrying. <laughs> and I couldn't see an answer to it. I couldn't see how we were going to get out of the situation. It was, it was a big legal morass. And I had gone to some uh, very trusted God brothers who just all happened to be in town at the same time, senior devotees. And I had met with them and I told them the whole situation. I said, how's this going to turn out? What's going to happen? And they all said, uh, well, it is pretty bad, but you'll probably get out of it. And I was driving home feeling a little unsatisfied. It's like, that didn't help. But one of them that was there 
later on, he, a couple days later, he had been reading the Bhagavatam, and there was a section in it where Lord Brahma had given some instruction to, uh, to Prithu Maharaj. And it was so directly, uh, it so directly answered my conundrum, the verse, that I felt immediate relief. Had I not searched out the answer and asked, what am I supposed to learn from this? And how, how do I address it? Then I wouldn't have got the answer, but it was, it was forthcoming. One of the other very important ways in order to fortify your intelligence and to get the answers that you're asking the question about is by reading Bhagavad Gita regularly. At the end of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, one who reads this, who studies this dialogue, worships me by his intelligence. So when you read Bhagavad Gita, it hones your intelligence to see what the correct answer is. In one place, Prabhupada said that the Bhagavad Gita is the Vedic intelligence. It's consolidated in seven, 700 verses. So those are a couple point, places that, that may have help. What else did you hear that you want to reflect back? Yes. Hare Krishna. Uh, thank you so much, Maharaj, for visiting this kind of talk. We are very grateful for your association. Uh, the first question you talked about was, what is my priority, right? So my question is, uh, let's say I'm a Grahastha, right? I mean, depending on different situations, the priority keeps changing, at least for me sometimes. I mean, I know that's a, that's a temporary thing. You know, depending on the situation, sometimes you handle certain things and that's a priority. But how do we constantly remind ourselves, okay, yeah, this is a temporary thing, don't worry about it. But the ultimate thing is to you know, prepare for the final moment of life of serving Krishna. So how do we constantly remind ourselves and stay focused on the main thing? Don't get distracted by the other incidents that happen in your life or certain other things. What I found was, it's a, it's a really practical question, thank you very much. What I found was when I wrote my priorities and I remembered that my ultimate priority was preparing myself for leaving the world. Whenever these confusing situations might come up and they come up more readily than we might expect, and I revisited that. That, that priority, it helped me deal with the situation in a much more reasonable way. Because my perspective was lifted. It was lifted above just the temporary situation I'm in now. So at the very least, it does that. And in another way, for instance, if you say my ultimate purpose is to attain Krishna Prema, when, when you have these near the top of your list and you revisit them as a reminder of why you're living, why are you living your life, you're able to tolerate other kinds of situations and realize that they're even preparing you for that. And yeah, one of the ways that it does that is in situations where you have to make a choice. Have you ever been in situations where you had to make a choice? That's good. Oftentimes, it's really hard to tell which choice to make. But if you have a criterion by which you make that decision and you measure it up to that, then it can be much easier. 
So when you have your priorities uh, straight, you might ask yourself, when you make a, a decision between A and B, what is better for my service? Now, Nirkula and I, I just found out today, we've been married 36 years. And we, we've had to make a lot of decisions, just like everybody else. And in decisions, I mean, it's a decision, there's a way that there's things you, you know, which, which way do you cut? Which thing do you choose? Which better? If you have your priorities straight when you make these decisions, it's much easier to do it by rule of thumb. Just like investing money. You've got to have a philosophy. Because when the market starts going down, it goes, sell everything. And then, like, your new philosophy by default is buy high, sell low, right? Because you don't have a philosophy. So in the same thing in your life, if you have a philosophy that's really clear, that I make decisions based on what's best for my service. So now, when you have a choice to make, let's say there's two houses. One of them is much bigger, but it's a little bit further away, maybe 20 minutes further drive. We'll make it like 45 minutes. You know, by distance, like with internet, <laughs> It's like, eh, I don't know, it's breaking up a little bit. The further away we get from the opportunity for sadhu sangha, the more, you know, our, our practice starts. It's breaking up a little. <laughs> so we might then make a decision. I was like, okay, we'll take this one because it's closer to service. This job because it's closer to service. And if you stick with that philosophy throughout your life, you'll never go wrong because you're sticking to the... Your, your dharma, what's most important, if you have taught, well, listen, just live by that, then it's impossible to make a mistake. Even if you make the wrong choice, apparently, Krishna will make it right. We've had that happen before. Some, you know, we, we've made decisions based on that, and they, they were harder to make, but based, based on the material circumstances, but because we had that philosophy, we watched as the whole thing turned around, and it became miraculously uh, aligned in ways that we could have never done ourselves. So that's an example. When you have your priorities straight and then you reinforce them and say, my main purpose in life is to serve Krishna and to do my, uh, my sadhana, then when you make a choice, say, yeah, I'll do this, not that, because this way I can do my sadhana and so forth. Then you come out on top from day to day, year to year, month to month, because really, investing in spiritual life, in spiritual practice, there's all gain and no risk. Would you like an investment like that? And investing in material life, although we have to do our duty, right? You can't shirk your duty and just walk away. But you have to keep in mind that it's all risk and no gain in the material world. That's a fact. I mean, we can prove that empirically. <laughs> so if you keep these things balanced and in mind, it's, it's easier to make decisions. And of course, do your duty, but keep your priorities. Okay, we take one more from this side of the room. Hey, Mr. Um, my question is uh, for the last question, which is where we direct our uh, attention and 
Where am I investing my attention right now? So, oftentimes, even in the Bhagavad Gita or in different parts of the Shastra, the mind is referred to as a child, which we need to regulate and eventually gain victory over by controlling our mind. Uh, through, throughout the course of multiple lifetimes, the mind is conditioned to uh, do things, whatever it comes to its mind, which means that we would be forced to direct our energy towards things that don't matter. So, what would be the most effective ways of constantly being aware of the fact that we are not directing our energy into the wrong places and direct our energy and attention where it matters the most? Follow Shastra. In the Gita, Krishna says, Raga Dvesha Vimuktaistu Vishayan Indrayaishchara Atmavasharabhadeyatma Prasada Marigachati. He said, find out the regulative principles and then follow them strictly. And by that, you'll get prasad. Mercy comes to those who follow the Shastra carefully. So there's Shastra and then there's Shastra. Shastra means the scripture and Shastra means the sword. So you can do this the easy way or the hard way. Which way would you like? <laughs> there was this... There's a, a story that I love, it's so instructive. Giri Rajmarsh tells us about when he was in Bombay. And there was this father, um, there was a young man who was helping to, to translate Prabhupada's books into Marathi. And he used to bring his father because this boy would meet with Prabhupada to check on some of the translation and ask him questions. And so the boy's father would come along sometimes just to have the opportunity to meet Prabhupada. But he was a little bit, this man was a little sheepish because he smoked cigarettes and he was embarrassed about it. So he asked Prabhupada once about, you know, I'd like to give this up. And at a later time when Prabhupada met him, he said, uh, you know, how's it going? Were you able to give up smoking? And the man said, Prabhupada, I, I need your special mercy for this to give this up. And Prabhupada says, yes, I can give you special mercy, but that means Krishna will make you so miserable that you'll be forced to give it up. <laughs> so otherwise you can just do it yourself. And then he said, would you like special mercy? And the man said, no, 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 that's okay, Prabhupada. I'll do it myself. So we can do it the easy way or the hard way. And not make, I don't mean to make light of the situation that we might find ourselves in when achieve a level of, not, it's not an achievement, but we've become degraded into addictions. Addiction means I know what's the right thing to do, but I, I, don't, I no longer, I've lost the power to do it, and now I'm being forced by my mind to do it, as you've described. In those cases, there's, there are uh, gradual ways to improve oneself. One has to work vigilantly to purify the senses, to be engaged in service and to have good association and try to avoid situations that will trigger the desire to go for the addiction more and more. It's, it's not so easy and there's a reason for that. The world's very sticky because if it was so easy just to involve oneself in the material energy and then get out of it, then we do it all the time and just think like, why don't you just stay here? But if you're, if you're serious about getting out of the trap of the material energy, 
And then you start realizing how sticky it is. You know how sticky it is? As sticky as mango sap. You ever got mango sap in your hair? You might as well just cut it all off. <laughs> That's what happened to me. Got mango sap. I just cut my hair off and left it off. Mango sap sticky. The material world sticky. Also, we get involved. You put your nose where you, where it doesn't belong. You invest your attention in the wrong place, and now you've got yourself a samskar. Samskar means there's a latent impression tattooed on your brain, and it keeps coming back to you. And it takes, for many of these involvements in the material world, a long time to purify that. In fact, I was reading in the Yoga Sutras a while back, a commentary, and it was talking about how yogis, yogis who practice mechanical yoga, they're so sensitive to Ladini Samskar. Ladini Samskar means these peak, so-called uh, happiness, uh, pleasure, experiences in the material world. There are various ways that people get these peak experiences. And he said, they're so wary of those because once you touch that, then it's something that repeats on you again and again and again. It, it, it takes lifetimes really to overcome that. So in the commentary it said, these yogis, they're as sensitive as an eyeball. He said, why an eyeball? Because an eyeball's one of the most sensitive parts of your body. If you get a tiny little hair in there, you, you, like, you, can, you can barely see or function. So in the same way, we should be that sensitive to investing our attention in the, in the wrong place. In other words, avoid into that, aware of the fact that there are consequences, consequence. You touch it, you buy it. You break, you buy. <laughs> you touch that. So. In the bhakti path, the admonition is, if it's not for service, don't touch it. The whole universe is paraphernalia to be used in Krishna's service. And if you don't have the intention of using it in the service, don't touch it. What's the advice? Everything in the universe, the universe is paraphernalia to be used in Krishna's service, you don't have the attention to use it in service, don't touch it. Don't touch it with your eyes, don't touch it with your ears. If your intention is wrong, you just caught yourself a haladini samskar, some kind of samskar, and it's going to be really hard to get out. It's mango sap. So keep in service. Always use everything for Krishna's service, and when it's not, just leave it alone uh, if you can't use it in service. Round Rock. This is the place. It's the best kept secret. Do you have your hand up? I have just one question. That's okay. We got all night. We'll be here till midnight. Just kidding. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Uh, my question is like, how I understand that when I'm doing the service, I'm doing it in the right mood and with the right mindset. How do I understand that? That's a really important point because even as I'm doing service, it's possible to uh, be motivated in the wrong way or even to, yeah, it could be an ill motivation. So one thing is to, to be self-observant. And Bhaktivinoda Thakur talks about four motivations that we may have in our lives. 
The lowest of all motivations is fear, he says. We're doing something because we're afraid. And the second, the next one in the hierarchy is prospects. What am I going to get from this? That's the uh, default mode of the material world. Unless I'm getting paid, I'm not working for you, right? Say yes. Because if your boss calls you and says, you keep coming in, only one thing, we're not paying you anymore. You're not going to go in, right? That's prospect. That's the relationship. And that's why we're doing the service for our organization because I'm getting paid. The next one above that is duty. I'm not getting paid. It's like, why are you doing it? It's my duty. That's a very high concept and it's very rare also, but people do that. And the highest, he said, is love. When you have love, then you'll, you'll give everything because uh, all emotions, they culminate in love or all the, the best intentions culminate in love or are produced from love. So how can we do it, you're saying? So one thing is to associate with those who do have a higher motivation. The intentions of others rub off on us. It's very subtle. Intention is so, uh, although subtle, it is... Uh, Measurable. You want me to prove it? Yes. Okay, only three people want me to prove it. Everybody else, cover your ears. In a court of law, what are people doing when they go to a criminal trial? All they're trying to do is measure the intention. If, if you were cleaning your bow and arrow and an accidentally arrow went off, went through the window and, you know, killed the guy's cat next door, it's like, oh, it was an accident. I was cleaning my bow and arrow. No, no big thing. I mean, it's a big thing. Poor cat got killed, but it's like, you're not going to jail for that one. I better make it a person, because you might not go to jail for killing a cat anyway. Well, you might. But the next thing they, they want to know, if they look and they see, like, okay, it was a heated conversation. You took out your bow and arrow. You didn't mean to let it go, but you accidentally did, and, you know, you killed the guy. That's a little more, right? Aggravated assault or something. Don't quote me on that, I'm not a lawyer. And then, then if they find out, you know, you went to Home Depot and bought duct tape, you stalked the guy for three weeks, they could see it on the cell phone, <laughs> and then you shot him with your bow and arrow when he was tied up, you'll probably get the death penalty, especially in Texas. So, um, you know, that's intention. Like, what was your intention? So if, if you... If you try to find people that are well-intended, like that's why we want to associate with those who have a pure intention. If they have love and you associate with them, you'll see how wonderful it is and, and think, yeah, I want to be freed from the burden of lower intentions. And, and let, me, let me do that. So try to find high-minded people who have the, these intentions and it's, it's absolutely liberating to be in the association of those even if you're with somebody who just is doing out of duty. It, it's an extremely purifying uh, kind of association. Shall we arrange ourselves for the RT? Okay, let's do that.